Hi, it's Chris. Two items before we begin. First, don't forget to sign up for my free newsletter at chrisreback.com. It brightens your Sunday afternoon with backstories, show notes, extra questions with guests, and more. This week's bonus question for Dan Pfeiffer, do you wish President Obama were more vocal today? You can sign up at chrisreback.com. Next, if you like the podcast and the newsletter, how about becoming a member of Chris Reback's Conversations? Members get exclusive early access to select podcasts before wider release, like my recent live podcast. You also get invitations to submit questions for upcoming podcast guests. Other benefits will be added in the future, and we offer two tiers of membership, patron and superstar. Choose the one that's right for you at chrisreback.com slash membership. Thanks, and now let's get to the podcast. I'm Chris Reback. This is Political Wire Conversations. So here's the timeline. Two days ago, I spoke with Dan Pfeiffer. As you surely know, he's President Obama's former communications director and senior advisor and co-host of a podcast you might have heard of, Pod Save America. Then, yesterday, Dan's new book, Yes, We Still Can, Politics in the Age of Obama, Twitter, and Trump, debuts at number one on the New York Times bestseller list. Coincidence? I'll let you decide. All I can do is accurately portray the facts. The other thing I can do, tell you that the book is a terrific read and the conversation was even better. He's got a great sense of humor. That comes out in the book, too. We also discussed, though, the serious side of politics today. I asked Dan about Democratic messaging for the midterms and beyond. What should their message be, and can they possibly overcome all the noise? As well, who's the elected Democrat who can best lead that narrative? We also discussed the ways in which he feels Barack Obama's election helped lead to Donald Trump. The whole conversation was thoughtful and fun. But before we begin, I want to remind you about our show's sponsor, The Cook Political Report. People who want to stay ahead of the curve turn to the Cook Political Report, and with good reason. For 30 years, the report has nailed the nation's most important election outcomes and political trends. People who make it their business to know politics make it their business to subscribe to the Cook Political Report. Just go to cookpolitical.com to sign up. That's cookpolitical.com. Okay, that's it. Here's my conversation with Dan Pfeiffer. Dan, thanks for joining me. I appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. So I've really wanted to do this podcast, a uh, number of reasons, of course, but you know, especially from reading your book, you seem like a very nice guy. And you know, just to be honest, I'm, I'm happy to help you out because I understand that you have a podcast also. Yes, I, it is true. I do have a podcast. And thank you for saying it seemed like a nice guy. Yes. Yeah, and, and that's great. But you, I mean, just, you know, you understand it takes a long time to you got to work to build an audience. So don't get discouraged if things go slowly for you at first. Yeah, we're we'll, we're gonna keep uh, we're gonna keep plugging away at this whole Pop America thing and see how it goes. See see how it goes. I mean, would would you say that you're carrying the team truly? I mean, does does <laughs> Love it have any game without you? Um, I well, it is the secret sauce to the whole to make the whole thing work, and it's and it's in my contract, but I have to say that. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. Um, <laughs> more sincerely, why did it happen? Why why did you guys break through the way you have? Do you think? I, I wish I had a great answer for that because um, I would bottle it. But I think we happen to come along at the right moment. At the so you know we had this we had a, an older version called Keep It a Sixteen Hundred that existed during the two thousand sixteen election. After that election, we relaunched as Pod Save America. John, John, and Tommy, my co-host, started a company called Crooked Media that would host it. And I think it 
we happened to just come along in a moment when there was incredibly high interest in politics. And we tried to offer something that felt different than what people got from a lot of, a lot of political media in the sense that it was uh, trying to speak like normal people, um, try to not use like Washington jargon. And even though we are undoubtedly establishment insiders in our past um, to try to laugh because in, in Obama world, we always used to joke either at the worst moment you can laugh or you can cry. So you might as well laugh. Um, <laughs> and, and that we were unabashedly, not just progressive, but activist and that people, you know, progressive staring at what is looking at what is happening in this country. Donald Trump is president. We're looking for what to do. And we tried to offer answers in the form of a no BS conversation. Um, and so we fortunately were able, we have stumbled on a, a truly phenomenal community of listeners, people who call themselves friends of the pod. They wear the merch, but they, but more than that, they are volunteering for swing left and the volunteering for local candidates and they're registering their friends to vote. And it's been a, just a tremendous uh, privilege to get to, to interact with our listeners who, you know, we see when we travel the country for our live shows all the time. And it's really wonderful. Yeah. Well, you've certainly tapped into something. And, uh, the only edit I would make is that you probably wouldn't characterize it during, uh, the show itself as, as BS. You probably would spell out the full, the full word there. Yeah. Uh, I didn't, I didn't know what the <laughs> rules were here. So I censored it for, it, for the audience. It's really nice. That's, you know, just in case my yeah. kids are, my kids are listening. So, uh, but, but enough about that. Um, the, the other rumor is that, uh, you, you've written a book, um, which I read and, um, is a great read. It's a lot of fun, oh, and you. and it, it translates. I mean, you 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 feel it. You feel like um, you, except for those days, uh, of course, in the hospital and uh, other days, mm-hmm. um, you had a lot of fun. Uh, first of all, just to get this out of the way, you don't get royalties on parentheses, right? I mean, there's a lot of parentheses in the book. <laughs> yeah, no, I get no. There's no additional. In fact, if my editor had thought uh had edited thought about it more he but <laughs> yeah he might have deducted me he would have deducted my, uh like a dollar for parentheses out of my advance um the parentheses was a thing i stumbled on because i the title yes we still can uh came because i wrote the outline the di- for the book the day after trump won that morning and i was looking for a way to try to think about for myself, like intellectual exercise to try to understand what just happened through the prism of my experience with Obama. And the book itself is very different than the original outline, but my agent said, uh, you need a title. And I was like, okay, what? And then so, and, and we were like on our tight deadline. And so I just, I just came up with the answer. Okay. Cause that's how I wanted to feel in the moments right after the election. And I put this still in parentheses because it seems parenthetical. Like it, I wasn't, uh, I think we still can, but it's not that we will can, or we definitely will. Um, and so I, I try to sort of make it a running gag through the book, um, and I'll let everyone judge how successful that gag was. So, so can we still? Yes, I, I absolutely do. I, I think the book, I wrote the book to express, to speak to the idea that I think there are, we should be hopeful in this dark time, but I call it conditional hope. It is that we can make it that that what we're dealing with in our politics right now is an aberration, not the new, not the new normal. But it's going to take work. It's going to ha- it's going to require building all the momentum that we've seen on the progressive side from the women's march to the protests against the Muslim ban in airports, the march for our lives, and swing left and indivisible, and all these groups that have come out. But we have to 
we have to keep working and build on that momentum and organize and register and march and do all of those things. And if we do that in 2018 and 2020, we can change the direction of this country. So people should not give up hope. But if you want if you want to see through to a better America, it's going to take it's going to take hard work. And what do you see? I mean, you talked about the traveling that you guys do and, and that you're doing for the book as well. Um I imagine that in some ways people ask you to play something of a therapist role. And uh, so do, do you see that? And what do people come to you with? Are they, are they energized? Are they angry? Are they depressed? Are they, you know, excited? I, I imagine it's all over the map, but, but what would you say? And is, are the, is there anything you can kind of conclude out of what you see? The thing that I've really been struck by in all of the, Positive America events, but also going to the March for Our Lives here in San Francisco or being at the Women's March in D.C. last year is it's not angry. It is really the polar opposite of a Trump rally or those Tea Party town halls in 2014. And like there is almost a people are energized and they're looking for places to send their energy. And they don't like I sort of expected, you know, people to show up in pitchforks with pitchforks. And it's been the, it's been the opposite of that. And I'm not entirely sure what to attribute that to other than I do think that by being together, whether in a march or protest or at one of our live shows, people are finding strength in and inspiration in the activism of others. And I think what has been really notable about the people I've had a chance to meet are a lot of incredibly impressive young people who Maybe they voted in 2016, maybe they didn't, but they have, they sort of were not fully engaged in politics because, you know, they're like 25, you know, maybe younger. And most of the time that they were, that they were paying attention to politics, Barack Obama was president. They felt like the country was heading in the right direction. They thought Hillary Clinton was winning and they didn't think it was something they needed to engage to. They didn't, they didn't have to fully participate as citizens. And, you know, if you're looking for a silver lining in the very, very dark cloud of Trump's election for progressives, it's that you now have a true object lesson in how important being a citizen is. And, and we see people who are engaged for the first time. And that's what that's what ultimately gives me hope. And that's who I actually who I wrote this book for. Another lesson, though, and I, I wonder if they've internalized at this group that you're you're talking about, the progressives and, and really younger progressives, because another key lesson from the book is, man, it's hard work. And I mean, you make that clear. And that's kind of a theme of, of you personally, whether it was uh, cheating and it, it was cheating in Trivial Pursuit, just for the record. All right. Well, <laughs> we, we can debate that later. We'll, we'll yeah. debate that later. But but whether that I mean, the, the you know, your story about the basketball team and, and what your coach said to you uh, um, and, and, you know, the political races that you went through and campaigns that you went through and the candidates that you thought were going to run and then didn't and, you know, getting sent off to South Dakota. I mean, all of it in almost thinking, I guess it sounded like a couple of times about uh, grad school and about, you know, should you be doing something else? It's hard work. And, you know, you got to a really, really cool place, um, but it wasn't overnight and it wasn't easy. Do do they understand that, the progressive and the, the young progressives? Yeah, I think so. I think people get, I mean, you know, we have, people ask us all the time about, you know, getting on campaigns and why they should do that. And we make it very clear that it's hard. It's maybe want some of the harder work that you may do or more demanding or require more sacrifice. Um, but I think people, it only works if you are inspired by who you work for, or what you're working for. And that's the advice I always give people is if you're thinking about working on a campaign, go work for a candidate you think should win, not the candidate you think will win. And 
I think people in it, I mean, life, life is hard, right? Whether you're trying to work in the White House or be a doctor or be a teacher or, you know, whatever else. Or just That's, just raise a family. Yeah, yeah. Dude, just, you know, bring exactly. home, bring home right. money every day and raise a yeah, family. Life, like, and I think what I think is important, both in people's individual career arcs and in the country of itself, is that progress isn't moving a straight line, right? It can go, things can go well for a little bit. And then you take a step back, but you got to keep, keep digging and keep pushing forward and you, and you do it again. And that's sort of, that's something that Barack Obama would always say about the country, you know, to, he'd say to his supporters who might be frustrated that we didn't get X done right away, or we took, or we took a loss here or whatever else. It's that, you know, you, this is, it doesn't move in a straight line, right? It's not, it's not going to be just all up and to the right. Life is going to be great. We're going to have, yeah, you got to work for it. And I think that that is important, whether you want a career in politics or you want a better politics in America that you're going to try to achieve through organizing and voting. Has he read the book or do you know, has he uh, skimmed the I, book or I, have you talked to him about it at all? I have not, I've not talked to him about it. I gave it to him a few, uh, a few months ago. Um, but I haven't, I haven't heard, uh, he, he would be a very, uh, he, he's an intimidatingly good writer to share a piece <laughs> of writing with. So I'll, you know, I may see him in, uh, in a few, you know, next time, next time I come to Washington and, and, I'll, and I'll get my review. Do, do you think he would like it? I, I hope so. I, I think so. I think he, uh, I think my, my hope, I wrote it hoping that, uh, and he wasn't my, my, this wasn't like a, you know, a, this, this wasn't like a Trump situation where I had like, I have an audience of one. Uh, but I think it, I hope it would remind him of the special journey we went on and that he would agree with a lot of the lessons that I try to extract from our experiences to apply to politics because I learned a lot of those lessons from him. Yeah, uh, that I've I've never met him, but I that that would be my take. I think he would. Uh, I mean, there are a lot yeah. of lessons yeah. in there, and um, yes, a lot of them are are ones that you communicate, uh, you know, from from him. It it was uh, it was good stuff. Can we talk about uh, democratic messaging uh, for the of right course. here, right now, and uh, 2018? Yeah. There's a, a midterm coming up. Just FYI. Um, <laughs> yeah, yes, yeah. There is. So so you wrote the perfect message is the holy grail of politics. What should democratic messaging be right now? I, I think Democrats uh, should have a very simple message about why they are why they are change. And I would frame that message around two points: chaos and corruption. That they will be a check against the the chaos of Trump's erratic behavior and the corruption that exists in the Trump administration and Republicans in Congress. And Centering that message around, uh, it's, it's a story, right? Like I make this point many times in the book, is that the best message are stories. And there's a very good, very important, compelling story to tell about how Trump's erratic behavior and his, and his corruption are hurting people's lives. They're hurting them in the wallet. And you can look at what's going on with the tariffs. You can look at this tax bill, which is going to raise people's premiums or to give huge tax cuts to Republican donors like the Koch brothers. And you've got to tell that story. And you have to tell it with relentless discipline because the press is going to be focused on something else. And that's not, and I don't say that to criticize the press, although I, you know, I'm not entirely shy to do that. But the biggest story in the country and for the last two years has been the Russia investigation. And it should be. It, it, I mean, if what uh, many people believe the Trump campaign did is true, it would be the greatest political scandal in history. And uh, but it's also not the issue that is most important to voters. And so Democrats have to, you have to be, have relentless discipline. The only thing you control is the thing that comes out of your mouth. And so you've got to make sure that that 
is compelling and coherent, and you have to do it over and over and over again. And, and so talk to me about the over and over again, because if the message, if the narrative is that, that you're kind of advocating um, is chaos and corruption, um, you, you also write, though, and, and I, I took the point, but I don't know, I wanted to ask you about it because I'm not sure that I agree, that the bully pulpit is dead. And you kind of wrote that mm-hmm. as a circa 2008, I think it was, maybe a little bit later than that, yeah. um, observation. Yeah. And yet... Boy, oh boy, I mean, I understand the distribution channels are different, but it sure feels like there's a bully pulpit because getting through against the the rhetoric, the comments, the tweets, the everything from Trump feels very daunting. And so if there is a a narrative of um, we are the antidote to chaos and corruption, do you feel that that can cut through? How do you cut through um, against a guy who apparently has your old job um, communications director? Well, I think it's very different for the right because the right has a massive propaganda machine on its side. It has Fox News. It has this army of digital first uh, propaganda outlets like Breitbart that are pushing. They're just jamming pro-Republican, anti-Democratic messaging into the social media ecosystem that defines the social the political conversation in this country. So it's harder for Democrats. And so I think the the way to do this, you have to be able to take what you sort of need a little message jujitsu, which is you have to take what Trump says and then flip it on its head to bring it back to your t- your topic one. And then don't let don't spend your entire time trace, chasing either Trump or sort of dumb Washington tropes around like a stability debate. Like when you're out there talking to voters and, and when I say communications, it's not just what's in the newspaper. It is what is what is in your campaign, your candidate generated social. It is in your digital advertising it's in your television advertising. It's what your organizers are saying at the door. It's what congressional candidates are saying, um, you know, at every diner, VFW hall, uh, bus stop, subway stop that they're going to. Um, is to get your message out. You have to say it, and it has to b- run through everything you do. Like, we are at a messaging disadvantage as progressives in this country, a massive one. It's one of the reasons why we're doing Pod Safe America and John, John, and Tommy started Crooked Media. We have to build up an infrastructure that can compete with what the right has going for them, because basically Democrats have, uh, at least as of 2016, they have nothing. They have what comes out of their mouth filtered through the mainstream media, which is, will not always be uh, which will be objective and through whatever biases or filters the press has. And Republicans have propaganda and we don't want propaganda, but we need uh, we need progressive activist message organs like positive America. We just need a lot more positive Americas. Are you, <laughs> yeah, but not, not taking the place of, of course, but, but more, more like that. Um, yeah. More do, like, more like, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Under, understood. From the, Political class from the established political leaders. Do you see political leaders who are um, living what you know, what you are, what you are describing, or what you are advocating? I mean, I, I think about Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi as the you know highest ranking Democratic officials. Um, their messaging, their communication style, doesn't necessarily feel like it. It meets what you're advocating, does it, number one? And then two, do you see other uh, Democratic leaders out there who can do it? I think it's very challenging for established politicians who have been doing this forever to 
have the complete shift in mentality to move to what is an entirely different model of communications than Democrats are used to. I also think as someone who worked for a Senate leader, Senator Tom Daschle, uh, a very long time ago, apparently, as I look at the calendar, um, it's, that's a, that is a terrible position to be in to message the Senate or the, or the House or you're doing press conferences. It's just very, it's very, it is a very, it's not even a megaphone. They have like a cup and a string and it's not their fault. Uh, but I do think that there are some Democrats out there. We'll know fully how well people are doing once they start campaigns and they start building their campaigns around, uh, you know, around new, new infrastructure, new strategies, new tools. But I do think that there's a generation of younger Democrats who are, have embraced, who's, who have, are already adopting some of the lessons I'm talking to. And I think they're, they were adopting before the book came out. So I'm not taking credit for this, but that we're in sync on, uh, I think Chris Murphy is one of those. I think Kamala Harris is another, I think, uh, Brian Schatz, who is a Senator from Ohio, Ohio, I'm sorry, Senator from Hawaii, uh, who is really one of the best voices, uh, on progressive messaging and with both a smart type messaging, but delivered in an authentic sense. Um, so there, I think there are some, hopeful signs among the next generation of Democrats. And, but you will really see this play itself out when people are out of the Senate or out of the House and on the campaign trail running for president in 2018. I think the Democrats who have been running, you know, for Congress uh, up and down, the, you know, all across the country that I've seen, you know, this is obviously a smaller scale. You're communicating to a, you know, a target audience that's much smaller than the entire country, like a presidential candidate would be. But you know, you're seeing good. I've seen candidates who are with the right message, thinking innovatively about how they get their message out. Whether it's you know Amy McGrath in Kentucky, Randy Bryce in Wisconsin, or MJ Hager in Texas, who you know they've all found ways to break through with creative um, content that they created on their own. So I think I think there are positive signs out there, but it's going to requires a mentality shift for the whole party, both in how we think about the mainstream media and how we build our campaigns and communications operations. Man, MJ Hager's three-minute video is uh, something else, isn't it, Doris? Yeah, it's great. Wow, that thing was that was well done. Within yeah. the Democratic Party, and and you you say you say very clearly um, you hate this debate, um, but it's there, and and I want you to tell me why you hate it so much. This this debate of whether the the Democratic Party should be about embracing a strategy that targets the Obama coalition. I'm quoting you here of millennials, women, and people of color. Uh, or a strategy that uses an economic populist message to court working class voters. You called that debate stupid. Um, why is it? Because the same message can work with both groups, and it just has to be told in a compelling way. And the economic, the populist economic messages that worked, that work with uh, the working, the white working class voters who may have moved out of the Democratic column after Obama. Uh, also works with um, working class voters of all races, right? And that's one of the really, it's like, it's one of, this is why this debate feels dumb to me because when people say, when sort of pundit or reporter types say that it's going to target the working class, they mean a very specific group of white people. And what Democrats need is a message that targets the working class writ large. And that includes African-Americans, Latinos, Asian-Americans, women, there are, if you have a, a message that speaks to people's economic concerns and hopes for themselves and their families, then you can succeed. And we know this works because this is what Barack Obama did in 2008, 2012. 
We have to update that model. We have to update the policies to speak to the new challenges we have. But it's it's not that complicated. You just kind of hit on one of the notes I have written to myself. Much of your guidance for campaigning and for Democrats looking for a way forward is what you know one might describe as WWOD. What would Obama do? Mm. Do you is that still relevant? I mean, you, you do argue. You argue that it is still yeah. relevant. You just said it a moment ago. It kind of needs to be updated, I guess, a little bit or whatever. But but yeah. basically, that that pattern, that model, is the one that you would advocate. Yeah, it is absolutely. I think we have. One of the reasons that I wrote the book was very specifically, I looked at our time in the White House and our time in the campaign, basically the Obama decade of 2007 to 2017. And the forces that helped create an environment where Trump could win were the very forces Obama was battling. And so I wanted to look at those specific examples, whether it's Republican propaganda in the form of Fox News, the radicalization of the Republican Party, changes in media the rise of social media platforms like Twitter. And, under, and look at how we dealt with it, because Obama was able to succeed despite those tumultuous, powerful forces that proved so difficult for Democrats in 2016 and since. And, and this is not to say that we did everything right, far from it. Obama would be the first person to tell you that he was not a perfect president. But I thought there were lessons to be learned there. Now, Things change, right? The political terrain changes. The communications tools change. Um, the uh, the the economy changes. Where the policies that we advocated for in 2008 obviously are not the exact policies we should be advocating for in 2018, 2020. Because some of those, many of those things have been accomplished. Some things are sort of uh, overcome by events. And like when President Obama became president, unemployment was in the in double digits, and now it's under five. And so I think that it is, it is like we had a very successful president not that long ago. Let's look at where he succeeded and, as I talk about in the book, where we did not succeed and see what lessons we can extract to apply to the future. And, of course, you have to update those, uh, you know, update those to um, to address the, you know, sort of our new reality. But there are fundamental lessons in politics that we may have lost track of over the course of time. And Dan, to, to close out on, on one of the most poignant lines that you had in the book, from my point of view, uh, from Obama, where you quoted him, um, I was elected about a decade too soon, he said. Um, and you kind of connect the election of our first African-American president to the eventual election of Donald Trump. And I wouldn't, you know, you don't necessarily draw like the absolute straightest line, but it's kind of a line that, you know, that, that, that yeah. you draw. Um would President Obama draw that line as straight as you did? And, and should I feel – I felt a little – almost made me a little, you know, as melancholy or sad. I mean, it, that's a rough line. I was elected about a decade too soon. Well, I think, you know, in my friend Ben Rhodes' book, he made a similar comment right after the election, um, which that was after I left White House. I wasn't there for. And I think the point that I was trying to make – and it's like drawing a direct line from – one thing to another in politics is fraud. It's an oversimplistic analysis of a million things because if the Russians don't hack the DNC and John Podesta's emails and Jim Comey does not decide to unburden himself at the last minute and Hillary Clinton gets better data out of Wisconsin and maybe visits there more, then we're having a very different conversation about the state of politics and the state of the country. And um, so it's, it is somewhat hard to say because of X, we had Y. And so, but the point he was trying to make, I believe, is that he became president in because there was this mad. It was inevitable we were going to have a president who looked different than 
every other president that came before him, right? He's going to be uh, a president of color. And it happened sooner than it probably otherwise would have on its normal trajectory because of this very special moment in politics where Obama came along at the exact right moment that we needed someone like Obama, right? You need an inspirational outside of Washington figure who'd opposed the Iraq war was the perfect person to run in 2008. And so he won. And then, but it also happened to happen at a time of massive transition and change in the country, really tumultuous change. You had an economy upended because of the financial crisis. You have sort of massive and, and, um, and rapid demographic shifts. You had massive cultural change around things like same-sex marriage and get, and rights for the LGBTQ community. You had massive changes in how people get information and just like social media changing everything. And all of that happening with an African-American president at the time, at a time of, of polarized politics, the Republican Party polarized along racial lines. And they had a choice. I think this was impartial, a choice the Republican Party made. They could have, in 2009, 2010, when there, when there started to be some really disturbing uh, racial uh, animus and inner base, they could have stood up to it, you know, but yep. instead they didn't. And there's no better example than Donald Trump and the birther conspiracy because Donald Trump pushed the, the, the racist birther conspiracy in 2011 and in 2012 Mitt Romney, who by all accounts is an otherwise decent human being, went to beg Donald Trump for his endorsement. And so the, the Republicans, instead of standing up to racism, decided they wanted the votes of people alarmed by a black president and they chose, they chose the latter. And that's how you end up with Donald Trump as a Republican nominee. And once you have a nominee, that person can become president. And here we are today. And here we are today. And, and it's all in, in the book and it's really, I mean, this combination of thoughtful analysis, but also funny stuff and, and taking us on your, your personal journey. Um, and, and really fun to read just quickly. Can, can you confirm the, the, the big question out there that only crazy people have uh, newborns and book launches at the same time? Yes, as it is true that I have a one-month-old who is upstairs right now, and uh, we, this was not planned. The day I've been working on the book for a while when my uh, when my wife and I were, were so fortunate to find out that she was pregnant, it was basically the same day that my publisher called me and told me what my original publication date was, which was 11 days after her due date. So we pushed the book back a few weeks uh, my wife, who's an amazing mother and very patient, is uh, has been carrying way more than her fair share of the load this last, you know, eight days or so since the book came out. Uh, but I will, as soon as we finish the interview, I'm going upstairs. I'm taking the baby, and she's taking a nap. So. Okay, then I will let you go. I, I will not stand in the way of uh, <laughs> of a father who's going to give uh, a new mother some rest. Dan, thank you. Thank you so much. That was my conversation with Dan Pfeiffer. Want more from Dan? A reminder to sign up for my free newsletter at chrisreback.com. It has bonus insights from him on the question, do you wish President Obama were more vocal today? My thanks to Dan for the conversation and you for listening. I'm Chris Reback. I'll talk with you soon.